As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? People's childhoods play a big role in how they approach building companies and you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of them have something that they really want to prove as well. If you look at a lot of the best entrepreneurs, some of them have had challenging upbringings. And I think that fire in the belly is something you can't recreate. It's there or it's not. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we're going to take a little stroll through the land of venture capital. And specifically, venture capital focused exclusively on big, globally important, meaty problems, not, you know, the next social media app or SaaS startup, etc. On the program... We have Cameron McLean. He is the co-founder of a London-based firm called Giant. They are three years old, and they're focusing on just a few very focused areas. Climate, healthcare, and what they call inclusive capitalism. We're going to talk about that. And I want to have Cameron on because, like Andrew Beebe from Obvious, who we had on a couple months ago, Giant is one of a relatively new and fast-growing generation of venture investors who are backing companies taking on the kind of the biggest, meatiest issues facing the world and really leaning into this idea of kind of being world positive, mission driven, while also setting out to make a ton of money doing it. And so until recently, these two things kind of existed in opposition. I'm sure you can try to save the world, take on really hard problems, but you ain't going to make money doing that. You need to go work for an NGO. But as discussed many times here, that model is shifting pretty rapidly, particularly in terms of climate, where just a ton of money and talent is rushing in. Everybody's looking at Elon Musk and some of these other big exits and, and big success and be like, oh, actually, we can make a ton of money here, as well as solving big problems. And the problems are harder. It's more in the world of atoms as opposed to just software, etc. But it's just a really interesting time, especially as you have this new generation of investors and entrepreneurs kind of choosing to take on these bigger things while also, again, with the goal of, in addition to solving problems, making lots of money. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one, not least because Cameron has taken a very winding road 
to starting Giant with stops in Startup Land in Hollywood and the music business. He even put out an R&B album, which is absolutely a first for Danny in the Valley. So we cover all of that and how he ended up at starting a venture capital firm, really right in the teeth of the pandemic, how it's going now and kind of what's coming next. So all of this is coming right now. So here he is, Cameron McLean, co-founder of Giant VC in London. Enjoy. I have to say, I like the name. We can start with the name of your firm, Giant. It's just, just straight to the point. So what are you guys up to? What's the big idea? The big idea of Giant is to back the giants of tomorrow, the giant companies, the giant entrepreneurs who are building the future that we want to live in. That is the big idea. We founded Giant with a simple premise, and that is that we think the really big, important companies of the next decade will be those that at their core are solving a very important environmental and societal problem. And so, yeah, that's our core thesis. And uh, we invest behind companies building in climate, health, inclusive capitalism. And uh, those are hopefully the giants of tomorrow. There's a little bit of a story in the name too. I mean, I think there's a nice notion of, of standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think right. most big, important companies and entrepreneurs do in some ways stand on on the shoulders of those that come before. And uh, as, as a aspiring surfer, I like the notion of riding giants as well, riding the waves. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you learn to surf if you're from Britain? I learned in the slightly mediocre surf of Southern California, but uh, I was I was lucky to go as a kid growing up. I mean, I'm initially from, from the UK, from London, but I have a Danish mother and a Californian father. So I was lucky enough to grow up visiting my grandparents in those two locations growing up. Uh, so sort of a small industrial farming town in, in Denmark and the sunny beaches of SoCal. So, oh, lovely. The pipe dream, uh, we'd love to one day join Kelly and Laird in the big waves, but I'm not sure that's happened anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you invest in kind of three areas, climate, healthcare, inclusive capitalism. The first two I understand how do you define inclusive capitalism? What does that mean? Sure, we have been told that that's a, an oxymoron of a phrase, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. Um, how do we define it? Well, I think inclusive capitalism will be defined differently based on the location and the locale, because I do think it's it's somewhat contextual and relative. But our, our general thesis there is that capitalism tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few that seems yep. to be sort of the natural progression yep. and i think technology can be a, a big democratizer of that and hopefully provide more opportunity and more opportunities to build wealth and earn a, a good living for your family and those are the kind of companies that we're looking to back but of course that does depend on on where we're investing so to make it real we've we've got a company in kenya that we've invested uh, that was founded by one of the early employees at jumia and, and they're building a community buying platform to help families pool their resources in Kenya to buy groceries and, and, and save money. Oh, wow. Kind of like a community Costco or kind of Sam's Club or one of these things. Exactly. It's sort of like a digital Costco in Kenya, socially minded. That's a good that's a good analogy. Um, right. And uh, we've backed another company in the US called Meadow that is helping college students see the full cost of college tuition 
when they enter into university and help oh, them God. sort of navigate the best funding sources available to them. Yeah, it's a, hairy, a hairy thought, right? Um, <laughs> but I think common themes throughout, even though different emphasis is de- depending on the geography, I would say. Right. And when did you start, Giant? I think the initial start date was three years ago. But of course, you know, there was a lead up into that uh, and endeavors. But we held the first close on the first fund in January of 2020, a few months before the pandemic. Good timing. Fantastic timing. <laughs> <laughs> and you raised, you've raised, is it 300 million for this first fund? We're on our second pair of funds now. Um, we haven't yet announced the next pair of funds, but we've got a couple hundred million of AUM. Yeah. Right. What did you do before in your previous life? Because this is your uh, your first venture capital fund, and it's not easy to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, especially in a first fund. I don't know if, at least historically, if you were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to focus on climate inclusive capitalism, which a lot of people would see is like kind of, you know, quasi NGO charity stuff. And then healthcare, obviously, healthcare is more understandable because it's, you know, a sixth of the economy, at least in states, it's a big, big kind of prize to go for. But yeah, how did you end up launching this? And, you know, how hard was it? And kind of how did you get there? What did you do before? So if, if, if you humor me, I'll, I'll kind of go back to the very beginning. Please, let's go back to the beginning when you're in short pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was, when I was wearing a, a tie and a blazer and short shorts in England going to school. But uh, it, it has not been a direct path for me. It certainly was circuitous in some ways. But I, I do think there were some through lines that kind of drive throughout. So as I said, I was born in the UK. I think very early on was exposed to these different cultures, particularly uh, in Denmark and California, and and saw how you could organize the economy or the society slightly differently, and how business also played a different roles in those different countries. And that was, I think, an early exposure I I got to think about some of these ideas. Well, yeah, because also, sorry to interject, but you have Denmark on one side, and you have California on the other, and California is kind of uber capitalism. And then you have Denmark, which is much more kind of on the... (laughs) On the socialist side of things and much more kind of like the state has a huge role and taxes are very high, but everybody has a very good cost, you know, uh, standard of living. I mean, they're quite different models. They're hugely different. And, uh, you know, I, I got exposed to some some heated debate at the dinner table growing up between my, my mom arguing for, for one mode of, <laughs> of governance and my, my fa- father arguing for the other. But uh, they're very, very different. I think California, you can't beat it for enterprise and yeah. chasing your dreams and creating huge value from nothing. But I think I also saw in Denmark how there was probably a stronger sense of civic responsibility, more trust in government, obviously higher taxes. And I don't think either is a panacea, but I think you can draw positives from both. In some ways, we're trying to do that at Giants, bringing together sort of the best of California, blue sky, you know, optimism and ambition with Nordic sustainability and egalitarianism. So I think, you know, to your point, yes, I think those are very different cultures, but I think they both have tremendous things to to offer. So I initially left the UK to go to Princeton. And while I was there, I studied mostly courses in, or took mostly courses in philosophy, music and religion. And that was a really, uh, a real privilege to be able to dive deep into some of those questions that I've always been very interested in. So philosophy, music and religion. So were you like... Kind of like a long-haired hippie, like deep thinker, kind of like what was it? What was it like? College, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I guess as much as one would one can be uh, at an institution like Princeton. But uh, I, I did I did have my long board. I did have the long hair. I think probably if people did think of me in that way. Or, so yeah, I guess so. Took a lot of courses in, in in Buddhism and went pretty deep in that. I ask this as someone who took a bunch of classes and didn't know what I was going to do after. Did you have a plan? Were you going to be like a uh, you know, kind of Eastern philosophy, religion professor or something? Yeah, I, the honest truth is I, I strongly considered that. I enjoyed the, the senior thesis process at Princeton where you go very deep on a topic and I yeah. wrote a 100-page thesis on uh, the Buddhist philosophy of emptiness and how that influenced some major American artists. But I think after that experience, I realized that I do like people and that was a lot of time alone, yeah. uh, you know, writing. Um, but yeah, I thought maybe I'd go be a monk. I had notions of, you know, about being an artist. I, I was definitely sort of had a lot of different ideas of where I could head. Is there a easy explanation of the Buddhist concept of emptiness? Yes. Uh, I think the shortest, I haven't been asked this for, for many years, but uh, <laughs> I, I think the short answer is that nothing exists independently or permanently on its own. Everything is interconnected. And right. I think, you know, a lot of the uh, tenets of physics would support that. Everything is relational at a subatomic level. And I think the way one of the famous philosophers of Buddhism explains that, Nakajuna is his name, is look at a table. And a table is not a table without its legs, without a piece of wood, without the smaller splinters that make it up. And you can continue to break down a table into its smaller parts. And it's almost like an ad infinite process. And that's the true nature of reality. And if we perceive reality as it really is, which is truly interconnected, interdependent, the logical conclusion of that is to realize that your concept of self is an illusion, that there is no such thing as the ego or yourself. And once you fully let go of that, you'll see yourself as fully connected to the world as it is. And the natural outcome of that is to live a compassionate life. That's the short, short explanation of it. Wow. I love it. Well, we've never done this. Is also our first for the Danny in the Valley pod. About, you know, <laughs> yeah, Buddhist maybe philosophy. it's not. Uh, there we go. Hopefully, the audience is uh, enjoys it. But uh, so you went deep on that, and then what did you do? What I do? I, I graduated. You know, with the notion that I wanted to be of service and of use in some way. Wasn't exactly sure how I was going to do that. But I've always enjoyed kind of being part of creating things and building things from scratch. So I actually pursued music immediately after university. I had a band and was composing some stuff for TV. And that took me west to California, uh, as you do. But hold on, hold on. So what kind of band was it? And how do you just start composing stuff for TV? I've always played music from a very young age. I think I recorded my first album when I was 13. You know, was actually jamming out with some of the guys who went on to be part of Mumford and Sons. So oh, wow. I've, I've done, done it for many, many years. And we, how, how did it happen? Gosh, uh, I was guess I was in the music scene in New York. I had a band we were recording, we were producing. I knew some young aspiring directors who wanted to make short films and you know, asked if, if we could make some, some music for them. And that, that sort of one thing led to another. And so were you gigging around New York or that part of the country and playing venues and all that? Yeah, I was. Gosh, I haven't, again, been asked about this for, for some time. But yeah, I was gigging all around the Lower East Side, did a tour of the US down the East Coast, gigged some parts of California, gigged around Paris, Amsterdam, the UK. And was this like folk music, Mumford and Sonsy? 
Uh, yeah, we. <laughs> they might not appreciate the comparison, but uh, I was. Uh, it was like folk music with an element to jazz. I would is probably how I would describe it. Alternative folk. I did also at one point record an R and B album, alternative R and B album, but fortunately I was not the singer on that, uh, so you don't. Have to <laughs> so, <laughs> how did you? I know we're jumping around a bit, but how did you end up recording an R and B album? That was sort of later on, but I was a friend from from Princeton who was an amazing singer and wanted to be a recording artist. And so we recorded some songs together that I helped him produce. But that was really kind of a side weekend project later on in life. And that that album is out in the world, living? That album is out in the world. It's called Vector Zing or Vector Crossing, uh, spelled X-I-N-G. Vector Crossing. All right. Yeah. We'll check that out. Maybe we'll put that, uh, put that on the kind of the outro music yes yes <laughs> you'd appreciate that <laughs> so anyway so you were in a band living that life this does not immediately scream future venture capitalist yes it doesn't i'll give you that the journey is that i then went from there to, to california I, I did a stint in the then infamous william morris endeavor so you were in la and then you were at william morris for people don't know most people would but it's a the big agency or one of the big agencies kind of talent agencies in LA. Yeah, I think it's probably accurate to think of it as sort of like the Goldman Sachs of, of media in Hollywood, I guess. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was a short experience there. But while I was there, I had an idea for a big data social analytics company called Beehive. I'd kind of, I'd seen how so much of the box office and, and also music artists was being driven by social media rather than traditional marketing and how little was known about what was going on online and, and the spend. And so we launched one of the early big data analytics products to analyze those campaigns and, and, and connect brands with influencers. And when was that? That was around 2013. And we ultimately sold that company in, in 2015. Um, it actually been my second startup. I, I had launched a company in, in Princeton that was a music marketplace for college musicians to sell their music, really tackling my own issue because I found it very hard, hard to sell music online. But yeah, and it, that was the journey. And, and on the back of exiting that company, started doing some angel investing into very purpose-driven companies. I think that was when I really started to articulate the thesis of Giant and found myself attracted to these purpose-driven entrepreneurs building important products. And you know, some of those companies are companies like Mighty Buildings, which is a 3D printing construction company, 3D printing affordable housing in California, or, or Calm, the meditation app. And that was when I started to hone the thesis of Giant and I think learned the craft as an investor. On Beehive, you started that in 2013, sold it in 2015. That's pretty quick. Was that like a success, i.e. a payday that allowed you to kind of then start dabbling in investing? It was a, I think it was a modic success, I would say. You know, I think people did fine and we made some some cash, but I would not, it would not, it was certainly not a retirement check. And I think we, we learned a lot of things of what not to do when building the company. Are there one or two things from that experience where you're like, ooh, not going to do that again? or that was a mistake, or this is something that worked? Yeah, I think one of the main takeaways, which really feeds into Giant, is to have an important purpose at the core of the company that people are deeply passionate about. I think we saw an opportunity in, in the market, but I don't think myself or my co-founders were hugely passionate about the problem that we're solving. And I right. think that that translates into what we look for now in Giant and the founders that, that we back. Startups are really trying to do anything from scratch it requires a level of tenacity. From what I understand, I have not done this myself, but from all the people I've talked to, it's like you need this tenacity and that if you don't have 
that passion, the fire in your belly for the thing you're trying to solve, that feels like it's that's really hard to self-generate. Is that fair? Yeah, I think you need incredible grit to start a company, incredible perseverance. The odds are stacked against you. There's going to be a lot of hard nights and hard days and a lot of sacrifice. So I think you really need to care about the problem that you're solving. I think those are two traits that we look in all the entrepreneurs that we back. And I think also the ability to attract resources to your vision is something that unites a lot of the best entrepreneurs. I've always thought of entrepreneurs in many ways as commercial artists. They sort of have something to say. They need to see this product, like you know, this song, come to fruition in the world. They often right. kind of are toiling away in, in somewhat anonymity for a while. And you know, that's, that's a mental model and a lens that I use. Got you. And is there a uh, test or is it more of a gut thing? Like when you talk about trying to kind of find those people? I'd say both. I'd say, of course, after having spoken to thousands of entrepreneurs, you, you hope your intuition and pattern matching is, is somewhat refined at that point. But yeah, we do, we do also have certain tests, certain questions that we ask on repeat to try and tease certain things out. I think people's childhoods play a big role in how they approach building companies. And you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of them have something that they really want to prove as well. If you look at a lot of the best entrepreneurs, some of them have had challenging upbringings. And I think that fire in the belly is something you can't recreate. It's there or it's not. And so do you go deep on that? Like when someone, like when you're thinking about investment, do you be like, all right, let's talk about your childhood trauma. <laughs> <laughs> but it's obviously delicate. Uh, it's not what we lead with. I, I think in, in the process of getting to know an entrepreneur, we try and tease out some of those, some of the drivers, what's driving them right. at a fundamental psychological level. Right, right. The healthy chip on the shoulder. A healthy chip. A healthy chip is good, I think, if you want to build something really big and important, right? I think that lends itself to it. Yeah. Before we go on to what happened next, on the startup you did in university, because, you know, that was your first foray into, like, trying to build something. Is there something where you're like, oh, that's interesting? Or was it, did, did it kind of light something up in you? Or was there something that kind of stuck with you from that experience, good, bad, or indifferent? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always loved, as I said, taking things from, it's a magical experience to, you know, whether as an investor or an entrepreneur, see something go from zero to one and and come to fruition where there wasn't right. before. That has stuck with me. The kind of immutable truth and logic of, of solving your own problem. It's not how every company starts, but I think it's how a lot of companies start as an entrepreneur solving solving a problem for themselves. A kind of business lesson there is, you know, incumbents can crush startups they don't it's not the reason most startups fail but it, yeah. it does it does happen we were a college music marketplace and when itunes allowed independent musicians to sell through its platform it made it very challenging uh, after that. So, <laughs> you know and also and also i think to, to make sure you're riding the, the right tech trend right i think at that point people thought individual songs would be sold through the internet and for a long time that was the dominant model but ultimately you know the winning model was a subscription model where music became more like water or, or electricity and Spotify, obviously, are the current winner there. Well, it's so interesting when you look at the music market, and I'm sure you've seen the graph where it shows kind of total recorded music sales. I think yeah. it peaked in like 99, and then there was this huge trough, and then they just reached back the level that they had 20 years ago well, in the last year or two. Yeah, and that's disruption. Absolutely. And it's still, so you have like, oh, finally we figured this out, but it took two decades and Spotify still has its own challenges. And, you know, there's a lot of artists who are still like, we're not getting paid enough. Like, I think it's kind of an object lesson and kind of, you know, 
one, the power of technology to completely upend an industry, but also like the answer isn't always clear or fast arriving for the people involved. 100%. And I think often what looks like the right solution, perhaps in the near term, is not the one that, that ultimately wins out. I think it's often the one that seems less likely and perhaps a bit more far-fetched. Uh, and in this case, you know, streaming and, and striking a deal with all the record labels, that is the ultimate winning solution for, the, for consumers. I also think there's a lesson there in, in embracing change. Obviously, the music industry perhaps could have made life a little <laughs> less painful for themselves had they embraced yeah. the technology and change earlier on. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. So you sell Beehive, you start angel investing in like the 20 teens. And does that kind of basically lead up to Giant? Or did you do anything else before you started what you're doing now? Yeah, I joined a venture firm. Uh, I picked up an MBA at UCLA, sort of uh, concurrently. Just picked and... one of those up on the off the street. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. They were they were they're basically free, um, and yeah, and and that was sort of that. That's what led into Giant. And I think that the bookend is you know I spent ten years away from the UK, came back to the UK, and I think the idea for Giant was was really percolating quite strongly at that point. Were you working for a, a British venture capital firm? A European venture firm. And it was while I was there, that the idea for Giant, I think I just became really convinced in the thesis and also really convinced that this firm that did back you know, purpose-driven founders was as financially disciplined and, and ambitious as, as a normal venture firm, but exclusively backing these mission-driven companies should exist in the world. I looked around and I, I didn't think it was there. And I thought perhaps we could build that. Um, and perhaps everything I'd done before could potentially be tied together to to build that. And hopefully the world would, would feel that that was needed and, and useful. And so I started talking with my old friend, uh, Tommy Stadlin, who I've known for over 20 years. We grew up playing rugby together in the fields of London school. And yeah, we started talking about what it might look like. And his background was, was pretty, re- was very relevant. He, he had sold a company to Microsoft. He'd, uh, done a stint at McKinsey prior to that. And while there, he co-authored a book with the then CEO of, of BP, John Brown. Uh, and that book was was really a look at how big businesses needed to engage with society to create shareholder value, to put purpose at the core of what they were doing. When did that book come out? Gosh, that's testing my knowledge. I think, I think around 2016, 2017. I see. Because it's interesting because, you know, I used to cover energy back when I was in London and I was kind of started on the beat kind of in the aftermath of Lord Brown who was running BP he famously kind of created the Beyond Petroleum campaign and then it was trying to basically remake this oil major into like you know kind of like look climate change is real we got to get into renewables we're going to make this big shift we're going to lead the way we're remaking our brand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was like, oh, you know, the world said no, basically. Investors said no. Oil prices spiked. Everybody's like, you need to pump more oil. And that attempted shift was basically poo-pooed after. Given where we are now in 2023, I think it's a really interesting kind of, if you look back, like a lot of the things he was saying 
20 years ago, a lot of more people are saying now, but then it was kind of like try and effectively fail. Yeah, I think uh, he was a visionary in many ways. He famously tried to rebrand BP to Beyond Petroleum. I think by his own admission, he was perhaps too early. But yeah, he, he was the first CEO of a big oil company to admit that oil was contributing to climate change and climate change was man-made. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. But perhaps it was not the right idea for the time or, or the world was not ready to hear it, as, as you said. But I think the world is ready now. Yeah, it kind of gets to that question, which is very, very important in your business, which is timing, right? Yes, yes. The timing is timing is everything. I think the timing of what we're doing is is essential because on the negative side, I do think the challenges that we're facing today are quite serious. I think everyone's aware of climate change and, and its rapid acceleration. I think also our other themes are quite relevant. I think the pandemic really showed people how strained many of our health our healthcare systems are. Yeah. Uh, and of course and inequality I think is one of the reasons that democracy is perhaps a bit strained in, in some parts of the West. And I think capitalism, you know, it has to be part of the solution. It's also part of the problem. It's also what caused some of these issues, but it has to be part of the solution. I don't think that government alone will be able to solve these challenges. And that's where we think purpose-driven entrepreneurship will, will play a huge role. And then on the positive side, when I look at this moment in time, I think we'll look back on it, I hope, and say, wow, like humans really pulled that out of the bag. We really did some, some amazing things. We, we accelerated some phenomenal technology. We harnessed innovation. And you know, despite the daily news cycle, we'll, we'll be amazed by what we've, we've done in this period in time. I, I hope that's what we look back. In fact, it sort of has to be. Otherwise, you know, I'm not sure what the alternative is. I mean, that's Yeah, otherwise we're all kind of screwed. Yeah, yeah, basically. So I'd rather I'd rather I'd rather be a pragmatic optimist. I think it's uh, more useful to be a pragmatic optimist, embedded in realism rather than you know totally pessimistic, because that doesn't lead us to a very good outcome. Um, and I think yeah. in terms of in timing too, I think you know human creativity applied to technology is the driving force that is is changing the world today. I think technology entrepreneurship is the most scalable and impactful form of, of creativity, and so. You should either build those companies or, or invest in those companies if you can or join them, because I think that's how we really can have a positive impact. Um, I'm personally on the optimistic side. I'm long human creativity and ingenuity. And I, you know, I think technology yeah. is, is the multiplier of that creativity. I mean, just look what's happening with all things AI, generative AI, etc. Yeah. Chat GPT. I mean, that, that is, you know, yeah, phenomenal. I follow all these various techie people on Twitter and somebody last night just posted some new kind of some new generative AI company I've never heard of. And you can basically post a video of yourself or whatever you want. And then it kind of cartoonizes it instantly. Incredible. And it's just or makes it turns it into like claymation. And it's just wild that it just is. It's like that. It just happens. And you just kind of, I have no idea what this all means for the world. I mean, there's lots of cool tricks right now, but it does feel kind of like all of a sudden everybody's pulling these magic tricks. <laughs> it does feel like magic. And I think, you know, a, a novel technology product often, yeah, often appears like magic, right? When the first plane flew or that seems like a magic trick. I think no one knows what the world's going to look like with that technology. I think it'll change at a pace that is hard to comprehend. I think it will have very emergent properties and it's hard to even the even the best sort of predictors i don't think predicted how the internet would change the world at such a fundamental level and i, I do think ai is probably the next big platform uh, yeah in that sense so going back to you and tommy got together and say well you know 
kind of started kicking this idea around, then did you basically create a deck and hit the streets and start trying to raise money? More or less. You know, it started in my living room. I, I remember putting together that first deck on the living room table, which for that period was also sort of doubling up as a changing table for my newborn. <laughs> and uh, we, we created the deck and like a lot of entrepreneurial journeys, we started pounding the pavement emailing, asking people if they'd like to invest, explaining to them why we thought this was a, a tremendous investment opportunity and they should get involved. And that was a few months before the pandemic. We definitely got our battle scars raising the first fund during during the pandemic. I was going to say, what was the reception as two first-time fund managers and also this idea? And we've mentioned this before in the pod, but you know, you have this kind of it feels like in a way the super tanker of capitalism is turning toward climate tech and some of these other big problems because there's a a model in people like Elon Musk who, you know, he has made a ton of money attacking this problem. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually, this is urgent and you can make a bunch of money. This isn't like a nice to have. This isn't some kind of box we're ticking. But it's also hard and expensive and high risk. And you have people like BlackRock saying, yes, yes, we're all about climate tech. And then a year and a half later being like, maybe not so much. So how was that process of actually trying to get people to buy in? At first, very challenging. I think like a lot of the best ideas, it was still somewhat contrarian at that point in time. We got a lot of eye rolls yeah. in the early meetings. Did you actually get proper eye rolls while you were sitting there? Maybe smirks. Definitely got smirks. <laughs> Of like uh, that must be very because uh, if you're like trying to actually like create something and you're like putting your heart and soul into it, and then you have somebody who just like effectively rolling their eyes or kind of giving you this smirk, like you dumbass, what are you doing? That must be very hard. You become very immune to it over time. I think that's actually one of the gifts of of starting something is you just stop internalizing rejection. How long does that take? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you ever. Re- I don't think you ever reach perfection on that. Uh, You'll still get some punches to the gut with every morning with some emails. That uh, yeah. But I think over time you, you you just start to think that well, that was that's a shame that you don't see it. That's not a fit for you. That's okay. I believe so strongly in what we're doing that I genuinely feel you're missing out, and so it's a shame you don't see it. But that's okay. Right, right. And how many knows before you got your first yes? You know, I think we got the first check after maybe the first 10 meetings. It was a very small check. But I think along that route to raising the rest of the first fund, the first two funds were roughly 100 million. Um, we got a lot of no's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think what changed looking back was I think the world did start to view things differently with the Tesla story. I think Elon Musk has done more to drag the car industry into the electric era than anyone else or anything else. Yeah. I think that changed people's perspective. I think COVID also changed people's perspective. They saw that the world is quite fragile and you know, perhaps we do need to pay attention to these things. And I think also the summer afterwards, 2020, when there were those, I think there was flash floods in London, there was fires in California. I think it really yeah. started to change the perspective of, of people in the West and, and decision makers who you know, were being exposed to it in a meaningful way. Well, that is one of my one of my pet theories is just we've been hearing about climate change for years and years and years and years. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we definitely need to deal with that at some point. <laughs> but it does feel like the kind of the visceral arrival of climate change to places where the people who have the money, of course, can experience it all of, of a course. sudden, like in their face in an undeniable way. Is all of a sudden like, oh yeah, okay, okay, like time. I actually need to do something about this now. I agree. And I, I think that's why we'll probably lurch forward and 
fits and starts because there will unfortunately probably be some pretty major climate events and uh, people will really focus people's mind and then perhaps they'll get a bit lackadaisical again and so will the politicians but it will go in those fits and starts but in my view it's it's reached the tipping point now it won't go back i think it's this you know to your point around timing it's the combination of there's a huge influx of entrepreneurial talent that wants to work on these problems consumers i do think care and and voters care and i think big business may be harder to bank on but i think governments have put through legislation that's very hard to reverse that really does set the playing field for making some real transitions well especially the inflation reduction act right which biden passed last year and it was i think the initial estimate is that it's going to be about 380 billion dollars or something like that in tax breaks and subsidies for all kinds of different technologies but talking to people in the industry they're like it'll probably end up being like something like a trillion dollars which is a big gust of wind in the sales 100% you know people in sort of traditional investment industry say don't fight the fed right um, yeah. if it's if it's lowering interest rates well in this case i think it's the same same dynamic don't fight the fed they just put yeah. a trillion dollars essentially of subsidies into the market um, which will have some perverse incentives that aren't good but for, for the sure. most part that just has eradicated a good portion of the green premium for new technologies and i think it's really encouraging consumers and businesses to adopt the green choice where, wherever they can so i i have a thesis that we'll see a whole generation of interesting climate companies that are largely software-led that are going to basically help consumers and businesses take advantage of those subsidies and unlock them in a convenient way. Right. So I think the cat's out of the bag there. That legislation won't get reversed, and I think it was a huge moment for the, the transition. And Europe's coming with its own legislation soon. And that's a bit still needs to be finalized and fully formed, right? Yes. No, it's the fine print's not there, but uh, it seems they're, they're motivated to do the same. And I think it was very clever of the of the government to, you know, I think people have been pushing for a carbon tax for a long time, but I, I think that's not that politically viable. So I think providing incentives and subsidies was was an intelligent approach. And is there kind of thinking about what is happening in the world right now? I mean, we mentioned AI and just kind of this explosion that's happening there. I don't know if that is making its way to your world and the stuff you're working on. Are there Are there any kind of areas or technologies that you think this is an interesting time there's a lot happening there's kind of a big prize to be had definitely sort of two areas that were pretty deep on at giant at the moment the first is the synthetic biology revolution so we think synbio is going to be a huge part of, of this century in the 20th century how we made things it was predominantly through sort of petrochemical processes and that traditional industry contributes a huge amount towards GHG emissions. And of course, the food industry and agriculture is also a huge contributor to GHG emissions. And there are some really exciting developments happening in Symbio where you know, we could potentially make nearly everything and also make our food using these, um, these new technologies. So a giant how we're kind of investing behind that theme is, is to find picks and shovels companies that are enabling the sort of synthetic biological revolution to helping them build out the infrastructure or offering machine learning technologies to optimize biomanufacturing yields. We think that's the, the right way for, for VC to, to invest behind that trend. But we think if the 20th century was the century of chemistry, we think the 21st century will be the century of, of biology. So that's one really exciting area. Well, it's funny you mentioned that yesterday. I was at a company called Sci-Fi Foods. Yes, of course. Yeah, and so I went and I had 
I ate one of their sliders. How did it taste? Really good. Amazing. Really good. So it was about 20% kind of lab-grown, quote-unquote, lab-grown meat, beef cells, and then 80% vegetable-based patty. And like together, I was like, how much is a slider? How much does it cost? And he said it was about $100 for the thing I ate. Yeah. He's like, last year it was 10000 He's like, next year it'll be a dollar. And you're kind of like, okay. But it's like, the, the, to your point around synthetic biology and people and companies getting much, much better at figuring out kind of basically how to program these cells to grow in the way you want, to kind of produce these things that are, you know, why wait two years for a cow when you can do it in a week for a tiny, tiny fraction of all the kind of resources that go into like getting the cow to a point where you can eat, eat the meat. It was a fascinating afternoon and the burger was tasty. I had it next to like just a, a normal kind of, they didn't say what it was. It was probably a beyond burger patty or whatever. And there is a notable difference. Theirs tasted like a burger, which is quite impressive. Uh, that's, that's wonderful to hear because I think the taste has been obviously alongside the cost, the, the thing holding it back. But if you get there, yeah. I, I think people will, will eat it. It just has to taste as good. And obviously you can't cost, it has to cost the same. Absolutely. So sorry, synthetic biology. Yeah, synthetic biology is, is one. The other areas I say uh, home electrification and just the electrification of, of the grid, I think is a pretty yeah. major transition. You know, we have a thesis or working thesis at Giant that the energy industry is moving from an era of sort of intense centralization with some major, major companies towards an era of more decentralization where consumers consume their energy in a more decentralized fashion and also potentially are part of the, you know, putting electrons back into the grid. And I think that that follows the model that you see in a lot of industries where they consolidate and then, you know, there's a disruptor or a decentralizer. And I, I think we're going to see that in electricity. So that's one area that we're very excited about in Giant, the electrification of the home, broadly speaking. We think that the home will be kind of the, the unit of decentralization, where as people electrify right. their homes with EV charges and, and battery storage and solar, the nature of the grid will change a lot. And consumers will actually start you know, having more control over their consumption and, and potentially being compensated for putting electrons back into the grid. So that's, a, I think, a pretty disruptive idea uh, that will probably go very slowly and then very quickly. Yeah. Well, even in, in California, they've just outlawed, I think any new build home now has to have like an electric hub. And there's no more gas hubs for example, which even that alone is like, you know, another kind of notch in this, like electrify everything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think there's also a lot of movement towards something called a virtual power plants, where if you get enough distributed energy resources, whether it's through battery storage or, or EVs or potentially even electric hubs like that, you can create essentially a virtual power plant. And I think we'll see a lot happening in that space in the next decade. What was the worst day of work? Probably uh, the worst day of work was was when March 2020 hit and we had a massive amount of capital pull out of our, our then fundraiser. <laughs> oh. That, that might have been a bad, that was a bad day in the office. But I couldn't really blame people because uh, no, everyone did think the world was ending at that point. Oh, so you had like kind of word of mouth or letters of intent or whatever and they were just like shutters down. We're just Definitive verbal commitments that, you know, people walked back. But I think, again, that, that sort of, Part of the course. Yeah. That was a bad day in the office. <laughs> yeah. And that was, well, three years on, you're still here. 
So we're still here, and I think you know what we've we've backed fifty companies, we've raised a couple hundred million. We're onto our second pair of funds. We are very much doing what we said we would do to our early investors, which we are backing companies that are creating lots of value, doing exciting things, and also delivering impact. And that's been our promise to our investors and our LPs from day zero. It's the same promise that we deliver today, which will deliver, is that we'll deliver you top tier venture returns, or and as well as impact across our three themes of climate, health, and inclusive capitalism. How is the job relative to how you expect it? Is it easier, harder? That is a good question. I think some things are harder. Potentially, you know, finding repeatedly amazing entrepreneurs that you want to back with is an ongoing, never-ending yeah. search, I would say. But I do think that, broadly speaking, it's it's gone as well as I think we could have hoped. You know, I enjoy I enjoy the mentally day to day. So I think it yeah. is, is is highly enjoyable. Getting deal flow is always a challenge. It sounds like. I wouldn't say we have we have a huge amount. Of, we have a lot of deal flow, but I think you know if you have a very very high bar, which we do, I think it can be a bit painful to constantly say no to things that you think are good, but you don't think that they're going to be exceptional. And I think in venture, you you really are looking for the the exceptional. Well, it's funny. I was listening to something a chat with Bill Gurley from Benchmark. Yeah, one of the, one of the greats. Exactly, and he was saying a lot of people get really jazzed about being right about saying no. All the time, like, but, but like, he was like, yeah, we were, we knew that one was wrong. But he's like, that's not the job. The job is to find the yeses, which is a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, it's very easy to. Well, the, the the odds would suggest that when you say no, you're you're right, because most yeah. startups fail. So it's not. I don't think you should beat your chest about it because the odds are in your favor. I think it's as you said, it's about being right. And when you say yes, are you are you really right? And sometimes those yeses look a little crazy. I think the times that you're really, really right, you're often in the company of one and thinking that it's a good idea. So yeah. that's the kind of fun of the job, I think. Yeah. And the scary bit. <laughs> and, the, and the scary bit. It's not it's certainly not for the faint of heart. And I think you have a lot of have to have a lot of belief in your in your judgment and your intuition. Yeah. Before I let you go, so the name of the R and B album was what? Vector Crossing. Vector Crossing. And what was uh you ha- had your own albums put out? Yeah, that would be under Cameron McLean on Spotify. Get those plays out. (laughs) (laughs) In case the VC thing doesn't work, you can still have that kind of passive income. (laughs) That's true. But no, Giant's Giant's doing phenomenally well. Thank thank you so much, Danny. It was was a pleasure. Wide ranging conversation. Went went in many directions. I hadn't anticipated, but really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Good, good. Well, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I wish you luck with it. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Cameron for taking the time. I want to thank you all, as ever, for listening. Most importantly, for doing those ratings and reviews in the old Apple podcast thingy. Because that helps other people find the show and make sure that we can keep doing the show. So please, if you have not done that already, please, please do that. I am back at the coalface this week, so writing about tons of stuff in The Times. So go over to thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk with your questions, concerns, comments, compliments even. Or if you just know of a company that's really interesting or a founder that's doing something really cool and you think I should have them on the show. So that is it for me this week. Thank you again for listening and we will talk to you very soon. And here to play us out, the musical stylings of Vector Crossing. Da da
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.